Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, this is Durant, and welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, it's me, Kai, Miles, and DR talking about the news that you don't know from the past week. And then I sit down with Barrett Holmes Pinter to discuss his new book, The Crime Without a Name, Combating Ethnocide and the Erasure of Culture in America. My advice for this week is, you know, I there were, uh, the pandemic, the hardcore part of the pandemic was so wild, and I feel like it felt like the days were endless. And there were so many people I talked to all the time, and we just, like, didn't maintain it after the pandemic. And we we talk still, but like I used to talk to them every day or like very often because we were all, you know, stuck in the house. Um, and I've been trying to do a better job about reconnecting with those people. So shout out to Dom, shout out to Nick, shout out to a whole set of people that, you know, we talked a ton uh, during the pandemic and then the world opened back up. Talk to your pandemic friends too. <laughs> That's the advice for this week. Family, family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. Post-Thanksgiving, we are grateful. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. My name is Miles. You can find me at Rapture on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson, at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is Dre at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So development, since since we last convened, uh, we had a verdict for um, the Ahmaud Arbery case come out. So Gregory McMichael, his son Travis, and their neighbor, William Roddy Bryant, were all found guilty, lots of guilties, guilties on all counts, given the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict that came out literally the week before. And now here we are again with another case that uh, is a reflection of the realness and terror of white supremacy. Um, this one, I, I, th- I thought they couldn't get away with, with not finding them guilty. So I don't think I was surprised by the verdict. I think it's more of a processing of the fact that these, this verdict isn't going to bring this young man back to his family. But you no, know, interesting to hear how y'all are processing it. You know, I think to hear to hear his family speak, to know that they're going into a holiday season without their baby is just um it's just a travesty. Um I think I speak for a lot of people when you're ready to get off the roller coaster of verdict to verdict to verdict to verdict and like these kind of like in 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 the cyclicalness of it. Um yeah, that's really all I have to add. I don't I don't want to just take up space talking about something that like I, I kind of feel a little bit empty on. I just feel like I'm ready to get off the roller coaster of um, just like something bad happening, holding your breath and either which way it goes, <laughs> like despair is to be found underneath it. You know, I've been Debbie Downer about this stuff, feeling quite jaded. Um, and I am 
ecstatic for the family that, uh, I mean, I think individually that family feels like justice has been um, accomplished in as much as it possibly could have. Um, to Diara's point, it doesn't bring Ahmad back, um, but, you know, in the in these out here in these judicial streets, we were not guaranteed of a conviction. And so I'm sure it is solace to his family. Um, And, you know, cynical Kaya was like, you know what? Every once in a while, they got to throw us a bone and make sure that we don't rage. um, And to make us believe that the system actually works. This one was indisputable. And so, you know, whatever, but I'm not particularly confident that the next two or three or five or seven are going to work out. But because I'm trying to, you know, I I try to walk on the happy side of the street. The one silver lining in this um, still cloudy situation um, that I found, which doesn't usually happen, is that the ex-prosecutor um, was charged and is going to jail, y'all. This is the lady who, you know, um, well, she was charged with misconduct and she, um, this is the lady who did not bring charge, didn't arrest the dudes, didn't bring charges against the dudes. You know, um, she was in cahoots with the popo and all of the things. And now she is going to be held accountable and um, so this is an interesting one to watch, I think, to see what happens to this lady who did not carry out her job the way she was supposed to carry out. And thankfully, the community spoke and got the process moving. But I think this one is going to be an interesting story to follow. So there are a lot of things that this makes you think about. One is that this is a police story in some ways, that the older father, there was a father and son as a part of the three. Uh, he was a former police officer who had worked with the prosecutor's office before. Uh, and he sort of thought that he was going to navigate the system and figure it out and move people around and just like skirt it around. And that didn't happen, thankfully. The second thing is, like Kai said, the prosecutor is actually being uh, charged for um for not upholding her oath. And it is so hard to hold a prosecutor accountable. I mean, we never see prosecutors held accountable for this stuff. It just never happens. So, you know, she actually got booked into jail the day the verdict, uh, the, the verdicts came out. So that was, again, shocking. And remember in this case, two prosecutors in that office recused themselves after she was, after that prosecutor was in trouble. Every member of the Brunswick judicial bench, all five judges also recused themselves. I mean, they really did play into just like, ride into the sunset with this one. And if not for the online virality of this story, if not for that video, we wouldn't be here. So it was a reminder that we should make everything public, that like all these videos should be public, everything should come out because that's how uh, things hide. And I'm happy for the family. I'm happy that there was some sort of accountability. And remember that Georgia is the first state to repeal the citizen's arrest law. Every state has one, and Georgia was the first to repeal it. As you know, probably citizen's arrest laws were laws that popped up after the end of legal enslavement to allow white people to still uh, detain black people lawfully. So uh, happy that Georgia did that. Georgia does almost nothing great in criminal justice these days, so it was good for that to happen. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart 
Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. So, y'all, my news this week is from the Washington Post. It's about go-go music. If you don't know by now, I'm from Washington, D.C., southeast Washington, D.C., to be clear. Even though I've been living in New York for 10 years and have a New York driver's license, I still love my city. And anytime I can be involved any way I can, I am. And so um, part of being a D.C. girl is the love of go-go, a music that we are still very much trying to keep alive. Um, when I was coming up, 
I went to private school and I would still make the private school have a go-go at the school. So Rare Essence would be at the Murray School. Junkyard Band would be at Sidwell Friends School. I don't know what these kids are doing today to not have these go-go bands at these schools. I mean, it's tragic. However, we see Gogo in this article is making a come, not even making a comeback. Gogo is here. We're just trying to get some recognition. So they basically had a big Zoom call, the Recording Academy, to talk about what's going on with the Grammys. And there are a bunch of members on this call. And so Kokai, who's DC person, DC native, who's a rapper and a musician in the city, is actually a part of the Recording Academy and made a big push on the Zoom call. Um, for Gogo to be in the category of regional roots album. Um, and so it would be um, along the same line of, 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 of music that is Cajun or Native American or Hawaiian. They even put polka in here. Okay, cute. Um, the fact that polka gets some representation and not go-go is a whole thing. But, you know, I'll leave that for another podcast. Um, so this kind of the conversation around go-go started last year at the Oscars when. Um, it's in the article. I don't know. It was in Meryl Street. Glenn Close. Doing the butt. And I don't know who fed Glenn Close those lines, but she sure did know them to the song. Now, everyone thought this was cute. I didn't. I didn't think it was cute. Actually, it got on my nerves because it's like, this isn't a joke, y'all. And it's, you know, we shouldn't get recognition because this white woman knows the words to do in the butt. Anyway, so I think this has kind of been like a conversation that's been brewing, um, given the national attention that GoGo had. So um, from people like Sugar Bear and Chuck Brown and all of these people who have been making this incredible music for, for decades now, now we're going to see the Recording Academy start to consider um, some, some go-go music as a part of this Regional Roots album category. Um, so some of the people that were on the line for the Zoom call who also supported this were P.J. Morton, obsessed. If y'all don't know who P.J. Morton is, you better go find out. Yolanda Ad love um, Yolanda Adams, Paul Wall. Y'all know I went to law school in Houston, so that's another favorite of mine. Lettucey and Layla Hathaway. Basically, if this was a concert, I would buy all the tickets, these people that were on this Zoom call who were supporting this effort. So thank you to y'all. So I just wanted to bring this to the pod because, you know, I just thought it was great news. I, I love you know, we can share perspective and, and shine light on um, pieces of, of who we are and how we came up, because I think that's so important to, to our identities overall as black folk. Um, but yeah, but read the article. It goes along, you know, and, and talks about kind of, you know, history of GoGo, folks that have supported GoGo over the years. Um, I guess so inspired by all of this, Dougie Fresh is now going to make a tribute album to um, Chuck Brown. Go ahead, Dougie Fresh. So, yeah. So I just thought this was wonderful. So shout out to D.C. Shout out to Kokai for, for making this happen for D.C. Yeah. And everybody go listen. Go stream some Go-Go over the holidays. So as a New York girl who's been living in D.C. for more than 20 years, Diara, you know I'm about it. Thanks for bringing this to uh, the pod. Um if you have not lived in D.C. or if you have not spent any time in D.C., you can't fully appreciate what GoGo means to this city, to this 
community to this culture. Um, I was reflecting just this morning on the first time I heard go-go music. I saw Chuck Brown play at the homecoming concert at Norfolk State University um, in what had to be, I don't know, probably about 1985 or so. And I know Miles wasn't even a star in the sky at that point, but... But there I was with my 10th grade self wondering, why is this old dude with a jerry curl out here rocking the whole entire place? Um, And so I was super excited. I live here. I've come to love go-go music. And so then it took me to the Grammy nominations, which happened this week. And alas, all of these folks who had gotten up their gumption to pull their go-go albums together in time for this new nomination and new category... There's no go-go that was nominated. And so it goes to show you that policy change doesn't always make practical change, but it's the first step and we gonna get it together and see some go-go representation in the Grammys, hopefully soon. I have like very like complicated um, feelings around um, the Grammys in general and like how much we should care and support those things. And <laughs> and it just, I feel like it always puts us on a roller coaster. I'm like, oh, anything that could actually make Beyonce feel insecure or make her feel or more put in putting it in the universe that she didn't create excellence is like a is a tool of the devil. So <laughs> I really relaxed on that. But what it did make me think about and what it <laughs> I think Adele. I think Adele she, agrees with you too, which is why when she got up there, she was like Beyonce. Listen, she won, listen, and okay, and split the the award in half. So I really do think that these like kind of iconographies and these moments that are uh, that we kind of like uh, just put on a pedestal can specifically for Black people can um, harm us. But what I did think about when um, when I was reading this news was how. Uh, there's this weird because all time is happening right now, right? So, what's happening in Asia and Africa and every, everything's happening right now. But I'm like, oh, Black Americans are making our ancient Black history right now. So, so we're actually creating art and music that is going to be foundational for a long time. That that and and it's important to maybe wrap those things up in things that white people will not destroy, like white supremacist tools of validation <laughs> to prove that it existed and that it mattered and that um, it was connective and a remembrance of uh, black culture and African culture. And um, that's what I that's what I really thought about about how oh there is a usefulness of kind of like wrapping those things up so we can almost keep our culture safe in the. Um, ego of white supremacy <laughs> but you know it's it's gonna be fuck the grammys until we get that time machine and lemonade gets what lemonade needed <laughs> um you know so i don't i'm from baltimore and club music is amazing <laughs> but we love uh we love the sounds that come from down the street as well uh, so the only thing I have to contribute, shout out to club music, is uh, that DC made go-go music the official music of DC a year ago. And that is really cool. And part of the legislation called for the implementation of programs to archive go-go music and its history in the district. And it is so beautiful. You know, this is something that should be a model for places like Baltimore, where like music really does shape so much of the culture. It, you know, like Miles said it is being it is being archived in the most uh, beautifully homegrown ways, but 
but ways that might not survive over time? And what do we do to like recognize that and then build structures so that like the next generation of kids will always be able to listen to Miss Tony said, how you want to carry it, which is like a old school um, club music thing in Baltimore or like ALU knuckleheads or whatever the legendary go-go is that like generations of people should be able to benefit from this because it has shaped the sound of a place. And when I saw that uh, it is the official music of DC, I was like, that's actually really dope. And I and I hope more black places do that and that like we do that to black music. Um, I'll add one other thing. There is a great book by an amazing sister here in DC named Natalie Hopkinson, uh, Dr. Natalie Hopkinson, uh, called Go Go Live, The Musical Life and Death of a Chocolate City. And it traces the history of blackness and black culture in Washington, a rapidly gentrifying city against the backdrop of the history of Go Go. Um, Nat Hop is amazing. She's a professor. Um, at Howard. She is a great, um, uh, a great cultural ambassador for our city. So pick up her book, Go Go Live. I don't know why I want to say hallelujah. Praise the Lord all day. Y'all really did that. I'm feeling it in my bones. Feeling vindicated in Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> um, I'm really excited about this news. So it was, I, I've always been really into uh music my whole life. There's not a time that I was not obsessed with music. One of the uh, first artists that really changed me was Jimi Hendrix. He just celebrated a birthday yesterday, which, um, so yesterday would be um, uh, November 27th, depending on when you're listening to this. But he just celebrated um, a birthday yesterday. He died at 27 from an um, from overdose. And I remember listening to the music and um, thinking, oh, wow, Black people can do whatever we want to do. And it was so interesting. And I had not experienced any type of weed smoking or drinking at that time. So this was a music that was the first time that I've ever had anything that I would say was really transcending in the way that people sometimes use um, narcotics, no judgment to, to transcend. And also he was so exploratory and so expansive with how he used the guitar and 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 how he uh, created lyrics. It's just a song called Angel that I absolutely love and implore everybody to listen to. And it's really this like blue psychedelic rock anthem and it's beautiful. And I remember really feeling emotionally moved and also like mentally expanded when listening to it, which was a very interesting combination for me to expand. And then I got into Jimi Hendrix around the age of like 13, 14. So I wasn't necessary that was really new for a song to make me think and um even though i was used to music making me feel it was something that made me think and feel um but fast forward to the news that i have because i was in my head thinking oh i want to find something to celebrate one of my uh heroes with and Unfortunately, I went to The Guardian and I found Jimi Hendrix's family dispute escalates over use of name for music school. And I said, if there's nothing to bring to my big brothers and sisters to this podcast, it will be this because I know I don't understand things. And I know that sometimes I could be a little bit reckless with how I understand things. But I feel like if I was born with the last name Hendrix and I want to do something with Hendrix with it, I don't get why you press stop. And I don't get how you go. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. And I'm not going to lie to you and pretend like they're, they're 
there this wasn't my ulterior motive for bringing this up. I needed to understand how if my last name is Hendrix, how come it can't be School of Hendrix? And that is my daddy or my grandpappy or um or my or my cousin on my on the left hand side. Why can't I do that? Why can't it happen? So to be more clear about what's going on, so the current dispute began in 2017 when the musician's brother Leon Hendrix was sued for using the Hendrix name on products which include cannabis, edibles, food, wine, alcohol, medicines, electronic products. An order was made against him for four thousand and two and eight in um eighteen dollars and a thousand eighteen dollars and an injunction was taken out against him, preventing him from further use of the name Jimmy Hendrix, the name Jimmy, the name Hendrix, and any configuration or any image, likeness, or signature of Jimmy Hendrix. Um, a New York judge has now ruled that Leon, along with his daughter Tina Hendrix, violated the injunction by running the nonprofit, non-free music school, Hendrix Music Academy. They must recall any merchandise bearing Hendrix's name and likeness. T-shirts with Jimmy's face were sold on its website and, and renamed the school. I don't understand that. I do not get how you can be part of somebody's bloodline, how you can be a part of somebody's um, uh, legacy, li- literally living legacy, and you can't do, and you can't use it. And I don't, and what I truly don't understand, because I can understand the likeness, and I can understand the Jimi Hendrix portion of it. I, even though I still don't agree with it, I and I still think that it's criminal and crazy that that's happening. I can still kind of understand. Why I don't understand if my real last name is Johnson, <laughs> why can't I then make? my Johnson vaccine. Why can't I then make my baby powder? That's the name that I got. So if your real last name is Hendrix and people connect it or don't connect it, I don't understand how that is, how that's right, how that happens. And I truly think because black musicians, black people in general don't make wills. Um, we are so left out of economic, um, uh, uh, expanding economically. It just feels like, oh, when you have a chance to do it because you have this, supernova in your bloodline when you have a chance to do something you're barred from doing it even though it's good it's 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 good work it's a music academy it's it's can it's cannabis it's 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 things that are aligned with with what he will want and why can't you do it i don't understand how that happens and i really really again i'm going to return to this part right now i don't understand if that's your real last name <laughs> How come how how can somebody stop you from using your real last name in any way, shape, or form? That's my news. That's really my that 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 was my news, and that's also my my riot. It, it was it was less news and more just I was so infuriated because I was like, how is this happening? And this news, um, just to be clear, was ten months ago. So this is a pretty fresh case of a fresh moment that that is happening. It's not old. It's it's happening right now, um, and I don't get it. Help me. Okay. <laughs> so. So, um, as an educator, I was outraged that, I mean, they're not trying to hawk, you know, Jimi Hendrix energy drink, right? It's a school. It's a school for kids. It's a music school that is, that pulls on the tradition of an icon of our um, community. And like you, Miles, I, I was like, her last name is Hendrix. She didn't call it the Jimi Hendrix Music School. Her name's Tina Hendrix. She calls it the Hendrix Music School. What's the problem? Um, and what I did find uh, a little later on, because I went down a rabbit hole on this, is that actually, um, maybe a month after your article came out, 
um, the legal feud was resolved, a district court um, removed the Hendrix Music Academy and Tina Hendrix from a contempt order stemming from alleged trademark violations. And I found this in the Seattle Times. Um, and they went on ahead and said that um, that the the court ruling that was issued before calling, you know, saying that they had trademark and copyright infractions um, they vacated that. And so the school didn't have to change its name. Um, uh, and they didn't have to remove any of this stuff. And Tina says all she ever wanted to do was help kids in the neighborhood, in the same neighborhoods that her uncle loved. And so they, the Hendrix Music Academy can continue to share, um, his legacy and their family legacy with kids, all over Seattle. So there's a good news ending to that story. How did it happen? Now, I will just say, as somebody who has lots of different kinds of cousins, that when I saw this, I was like, hmm. Well, the other side of the story is it looks like Leon Hendricks has been wheeling and dealing for quite some time and got left out of it looked like the like when they because Jimi Hendrix didn't have a will. So then they were putting the will, you know, trying to figure out who gets what he was cut out of it. And then I also found a hit that said um, a judge uh and, you know, whatever, this is here, there, he, you know, neither here nor there. But a judge was saying that he allegedly had some drug issues that he needed to get under control before he would be able to get whatever. So all that to say, if, you know, you know, I'm in a dispute with my cousins about my grandfather's name and my cousins are like, you know, coming out with. I don't know, what are the things called? The, you know, gummies that have my grandpa's right. name on it. Get Knowing good and well what my grandpa died of, I'd be like, come on, y'all. So I think part of it is, <laughs> this is a case of, I mean, you all know what, you know, typically happens with black families when some of our family members pass and there is no will or there is a will and people don't like the will. Um, so I just, I, I, you know, all that to say, like they, they, open this nonprofit, they open this school, are clearly doing things in, in this neighborhood that are helpful. I will also say that, you know, opening a nonprofit and then asking for donations, that is a whole thing that, you know, mm, I don't I don't know Hendrick's family. But Miles, thank you for bringing this. I think it just triggers certain things in me given what my family situation is. But, you know, that's not the same and, for everybody. And, and again, <laughs> my so. thing is always going to be because I'm, I'm always going to go for the for for the I, I want as many people to get away with as much as they can in this lifetime, because God knows we live in a country that has to. So my whole thing is always going to be now. Do they deserve this fee? Do they deserve to go to jail? Maybe we can call Tyler Perry up and they can get a movie made out of them and get embarrassed. Yes, we can do that. But do they deserve to go to jail and deserve almost half a million dollars charged with them? No, and that's what and that and that's what I'm saying. No. It's Maybe too far. it's too much. It's too much. I think it's just for me, you know, as the the first lawyer in the family on that side with the cousins, I'm always the person to detangle a lot of these things. So that's why I'm very like, well, 
what exactly happened and how did we get here and how can we make everybody feel whole? And obviously, how, how can we avoid real attorney's fees, which is clearly not the root. Exactly. Yes. And I, I agree with you. I'm, my job as the hoodlum of my family <laughs> is to stretch is to stretch the boundaries of right and wrong until they get to somewhere that is not black and white, but just black. <laughs> <laughs> we all play our part. <laughs> the only thing that's I um I completely forgot that he was that young when he died. I don't know why. Maybe just because like time passed, and I was like, "Whoo, twenty seven! That was really young." And also, I know we've sort of mentioned this, but I need to have somebody on the pod, and I, I'm gonna have them scheduled to talk about uh, black people and wills and estates. But it is one of those things that, like, the moment that these people get famous, like, there has to be a plan because it just leads to, I mean, Prince, it just leads to chaos, pure chaos. Not afterwards. even famous people, DeRay, just even <laughs> Granny. Is Granny's will right. together? Get and it together. Does everybody Way you get know sick? what's going the on? The fight that I've witnessed over yeah, my, gra- my great grandmother Sears, Hunter Green Purse. There was a there was, there was mayhem in the kingdom, and don't let there be a mink. Don't let there be a mink around because it's going down. Okay, it's like and it brings out. The, I've seen this money stuff just turn siblings into the worst people. Me and Trey already had this conversation. We get along. We not fighting over nothing. We like you can have it. You can have it. It's just we not doing it. It's just like because we, we've seen aunts and uncles just be really. Not their best self. That's generous. And we can we <laughs> we can we can plan in front of that. Such a holy way to put it. Um, my news is about a Missouri man named Kevin Strickland, who was exonerated after serving forty three years in prison for a triple murder that he did not commit. You know these exoneration stories are heart-wrenching to me um, as somebody who is deathly afraid of jail to think about spending 43 years in jail um, for a crime you didn't commit. It literally breaks my heart. But to take it to a whole new level of heartbreak, um, this man who was exonerated, he was convicted, first of all, having no physical evidence um, attaching him to the crime. And basically based on one eyewitness's very faulty identification um, and the eyewitness a year after he was convicted was like, eh, yeah, I don't think he was the one. And the two people who were actually guilty of the killing were like, yeah, no, he didn't have anything to do with it. And still this man sat in jail for 43 years. Thankfully, um, there's been a change in Missouri policy, which allows prosecutors to look back at cases um, that, um, that need revisiting and um, and that allowed the Minnesota Innocence Project to bring his case to the forefront and he was exonerated, which is great. So then the question is, how much did he get, Kaya? Because, of course, the state of Missouri owes him a whole lot of money. Nada. Niet. Zero zip zilch. Um, they give this man no money for the time that no compensation for the time that he has served in prison. This man has been in jail. Um, the, the murder was in 1979. 
and he walks out of jail with no money. Why, you ask? Because Missouri's law about compensating exonerated individuals requires that in order to get compensation, your exoneration has to be based on uh, DNA evidence. And since there was no DNA evidence to put him in the place to begin with, there is no DNA evidence to exonerate the man. And so he is actually ineligible for compensation from the state of Missouri. What a further miscarriage of justice. Thankfully, um, when the state fails to do its job, the community rises up and um, they have raised an online fundraiser um, organized by the Midwest. It's the Midwest Innocence Project. Sorry, not the Missouri. Um, the Midwest Innocence Project set up an online fundraiser. Um, one of his lawyers and the executive director of the organization put it together. And the community has raised over a million dollars for Kevin Strickland's re-entry into society. He doesn't have a bank account. He doesn't have a phone. He doesn't have a government identification. He was overwhelmed by the highway system, right? This is a man who literally has been behind bars. And we have said to him, sorry, not so sorry. And here's not a dime to help with your acclimation, reacclimation into society. In fact, one of the most interesting parts of this story is that um, when you look at the National Registry of Exonerations, of the 2,900 exonerations that have been registered, only 549 involve DNA. And so if all of the states had this kind of compensation scheme, it would mean that less than a quarter of the exonerated folks would have access to compensation from the government. Um, to me, if you were able to change the law or the policy that allowed prosecutors the discretion to revisit cases that looked wrong, then this is an easy fix. This is a stupid rule. Um, we should be able to figure out what compensation looks like for anybody who is exonerated. And it has nothing to do with how the exoneration happened. Fix it, Missouri. Get this man what he's supposed to be owed. You stole his life for 43 years. Give him some money, please. So I will say that the thing that broke my heart, in addition to everything Coyote said, is that he was asked, what do you want to do? This is before it was guaranteed that he gets out. He, he was asked, what do you want to do when you first get out? And he said, I want to see the ocean and I want to see my mother's grave. And the first thing that he did when he got out is he went to go see his mother's grave. And it's like society failed him. That like allowed for him to just like sit in jail he didn't do it Kai already went through the details but you think about all the other people who are like mr strickland who like a reporter didn't stumble across their case an advocate didn't fight about it they didn't have a lawyer they didn't write notes and and yet they are still in and even the national um database of exonerations is they have acknowledged that like they don't have them all either that like we're we know we're undercounting this so when people talk about like pro death penalty and stuff like this like we're getting it wrong on the easy ones like we're not even this isn't like the this isn't the ones with like you know 7000 reams of testimony to, it's like we are putting people away for long times on like cases where there's like no real evidence anyway and remember, this was an all-white jury that did it. It just is, this case, like so many others that have popped up in the national conversation, are just a reminder that 
the system produces an outcome because of the way it's designed. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't know about the design. So one of the features is what Kai talked about, is that what happens when the design says exonerations only by DNA matter? For some people, they're like, yeah, that makes total sense. And then you're like, no, 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 there are a million other ways you can get out. There are a million other ways. But like, who is leading that advocacy part to, you know, the DNA law was put in in good intentions. That wasn't like a poorly intended law, but it just is incomplete. And there are a host of those things across the country. Whiteness is 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 gangster. Like that. That's what I keep on thinking about. Like the that's really wild. And and I think about my uncles. And I think my first like real my real uh, so both my uncles spent time in jail. My uncle Troy, who passed away last year, spent most of our just knowing each other in in in, in prison because of um, drug charges. And I just remember like how bad other people would talk about prisoners and people who went to jail and did drugs and 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 sold drugs and I don't know be loving people who who've um, experienced those things and did and did those things made me understand where made me understand clearer that no it's like white people that are really gangsters like this whiteness that's really gangster this white supremacy we're in that's really criminal because how do you take somebody's life put them in a cell for 43 years and not give them a dollar. Not you can't. You cannot even buy a like a Big Mac, a McRib, and 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 we're not seeing that we're actually living in something really criminal and really like really harsh. And I, and maybe because I just went to go see House of Gucci, it's just making me really see how we're actually living. And and a lot of these things feel kind of like. Uh, mob mafia clansmen like a lot of these things feel really absurdly cruel and i think that again we should just maybe rethink our morality and what we think is like the most horrendous thing that's happened or the most or the worst things that are happening this is the worst thing that's happening this to me feels worse than murder this to me like i like this this is cruel it's extremely unusual and it's evil and it's vile and it's really remnants of a people who are kind of where gangsterness comes from and and where and where barbarianism comes from and it's remnants of it and and, and it's allowing to happen and now there's documents and papers and suits and and gray hairs and and oaths that go around it but in the middle of it it's still a really 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 gangster essence and it's and it's gross and doesn't feel good i'm not talking about gangster's paradise i'm not talking about 90s gangster i'm talking about like a different version of it and it feels weird and i think that people should really examine what they think is right and wrong because i just i just cannot imagine i just cannot imagine 43 years 43 years miles i think to your point it is it's just a it's a, a larger conversation around morality and, and and humanity. And I think partly what's wrong with this culture, with our culture, American culture, is that we don't give any dignity to people who are incarcerated. And I think, you know, the whole culture of how we set up this system is that we lock people up and forget about them. But these are human beings. These are people who have families, who are still very much a part of our society, even though they are incarcerated. Um, and, you know, like, I think ultimately, you know, over 2 million pe people incarcerated, six, I think 6 million of those people that it, it, it extends to their families, really. So there are millions of people who are living 
with incarcerated loved ones. And obviously we have those who are incarcerated. So I think it's also just discussion of like, what are we doing as a society to ensure that we are still treating people who are incarcerated with dignity, with care? Um, and I think whether you're guilty or innocent, it still is a matter of we, these are still human beings we are responsible for, um, who we should all be accountable to one another. Um, I think my eyes were opened when actually this, it was DeRay who introduced me to the DC department of corrections. And I learned that you can, you can volunteer at a jail or a prison locally. You know what I mean? And like you actually can, whatever your skill set is, bring that to bear when it comes to making sure that, you know, our, you know, people, people, they're in our neighborhoods. If there's a jail or a prison in your, in your community, those are your neighbors. And so what are we doing to ensure that we know who these people are, that we are, that we are, you know, letting them know that they're not forgotten, that their families are not forgotten, you know? So I think partly it's, you know, and I think, you know, this is what Brian Stevenson has been trying to do too with, with, with films like Just Mercy and his work is that, you know, You know, we can't we can't forget about folks who are incarcerated and we can't treat the most vulnerable members um, of our community um, with with disdain. And, you know, DR is being really modest because I did connect DR with the, the D.C. jail folks and DR put on <laughs> DR. Lord, see, I'm Baltimore today. <laughs> And DR put on a whole day event, got all these people up in the jail, like got the mayor to come out to like provide services and resources. And, you know, DR hadn't done that before, but it was a great example of like understood the power of community and that we should be loving on everybody, right? That like everybody, uh, you know, most of the people incarcerated in general will be back in community and that we actually all benefit from making sure that people have the resources and supports to be back in community so they can make a different decision at its best. So yeah, this was, um, wow. My news is about, um, my news is also an extension of the gangsterism of, uh, the police. So in Jefferson parish, oops. Um, so in Jefferson parish, the sheriff's office, they've issued over 73,000 traffic tickets and only six were for Hispanics or Latino people. And it was sort of interesting because, Hispanics account for nearly a fifth of the population in the 400,000 person parish. And reporters and advocates are trying to figure out how are the numbers so low? Like people's experiences were like, we know they're pulling over uh, people who are Hispanic, but like, why are the numbers so low? And what the sheriffs are doing is that they know that you can't have racial disparities if it ain't no race. So they are coding all the Hispanic people as white as a way to mask the disparities. And it is just such a phenomenal example of like the police know they wrong. Like they know it and they are going to use every which way they can to obscure the fact. And I remember we were putting together map and police violence. We found the same thing is that, you know, we were looking and it was like, wow, are the police disproportionately killing white people? And it's like, oh no, people just call to all the white victims, all the Latino victims as white people. And it, this was just such a like simple way that it completely throws off in the analysis. It like 
sort of shapes the way advocacy happens, it stops or slows down legislation from moving because all of a sudden there are no disparities. And they they went, you know, they went overboard. They just were like, there are no Latinos. And it was like, well, that's that's not true. But this happens in a more insidious way all across the country in data sets where it's harder to do for black people. Uh, but when we think about Latinos, it is easier to do in this way because it, they can just hide hide it in the data. Um, and we also think about why some, when we look at some of the polling, there are Latino communities that are more conservative. And I can see people being like, oh no, there are no racial disparities with Latinos in this community. You're like, no, that, y'all are lying. You are lying. That is a lie. And I just wanted to bring this here because I was, I'm, I am not often surprised by the antics of the police because this is so blatantly ridiculous, but I thought I'd bring it. Well, I'm gonna put on my Mexican hat for a moment because I think part of the problem is with my people is that they don't mind being categorized as white. So when I started to work in Miami, um, and was, you know, a young, scared and unsuccessful prosecutor, let me tell you. Um, all the Cubans that I work with who were, to me, Cuban and some darker than me, they categorize themselves as white. So I think in some communities, and this is the, pro you know, this is something that the Latino community has been challenged by is that they want proximity to whiteness, right? So I think in this case, like it is, you know, obviously like the police up to no good and trying to hide data, da, da, da. I get that. But I think there's another conversation, a cultural conversation with Latino people around what's going on, why the uptick and, and you know, like they're more and more, by, you know, voting on the conservative side. Um, and we're seeing that election after election. We saw that in these past series of elections that more and more Latinos were voting for um, whoever the, the GOP candidate was. You know, so we can get into it on a different day or, you know, maybe have some guests come on and talk about what the hell is going on. But I think that's what comes up to me, comes up for me as a Latino person who's always, because of my blackness, having to fight to be Latino um, or always, you know, trying to, you know, trying to, you know, trying to have this conversation even around labeling and why some people like to be called Hispanic. I have no idea. And I know because of data, you know, and that, collecting data now, that's, that's kind of the labeling that we use, but I hate that word. You know, the conversation over Latinx and whether people like Latinx or not. I mean, my partner wrote a whole book about it. So... I don't know. I think those are some of the things that come up for me. It's just like a deeper conversation with the Latino community about what's up, what are we doing, and what does that look like moving forward? So basically, nothing to do with that article, really. So sorry. Well, I'll continue to blame cops. I <laughs> think... <laughs> So, so, Miles, bring us so, back. That's bring the thing back. about these moments is that in our imagination, we can. There's so many different um, stories that can that can happen, and, and they're shaped by our experiences and our and the information that we have. Um, and I'm very comfortable in in, in thinking that uh, a lot a lot of this is because to 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 kind of sweep up nefar the nefarious things. And I, and again, I think that. 
we we some people rap about it, some people make movies about it, but cops do it. They do it. And and I think that's really important to um to, to kind of remember they do things that a lot of people would be surprised to see in a film. And it's a shame. And I think the, the base of it is the shame that we don't know. That's, 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 that's where the failure is in the fact that we don't know. We, we, I can argue that they knew about it. It's nefarious and they, and they, and this is on purpose. And every single person who, who, who um, was killed because of this is because, um, is because they were trying to, you know, fudge the numbers and you can um, argue the other way. And the fact that we don't know is really the failure. The fact that there's no confidence in, something that's supposed to serve and protect us is really, truly the failure. Um, and that, yeah, that that's to me where, where the where the foundation of the failure is. Um, this is yet again the example of a policy gone wrong. And policies are not that difficult to change. Um, the Jefferson Parish policy, or the the, actually... The larger policy says that you have to collect racial profiling data unless you have an anti-racial profiling policy on your books. And so the Jefferson Parish Police Force has an, an anti-racial profiling policy. It says racial, ethnic, religious affiliation, and gender-based profiling are totally unacceptable. If you have that policy, you're not required then to track um, what your arrests and tickets and stuff look like. However, it's very clear that this is intentional because when they looked at the most common last name, so how, how this even came to pass is they looked at the last names of the people getting tickets, right? And when five of the top 10 most common last names of people cited as white on tickets were Rodriguez, Martinez, Hernandez, Garcia, and Lopez. <laughs> it ain't no way these popo don't know that these are Latino people. And so the policy actually incentivizes misbehavior. Um, and so we need to change the flipping policy. Everybody should be collecting data because everybody should want to know whether or not their police are misbehaving, are disproportionately targeting minorities, people of color, whoever, whatever. And if you are honest about it, then fix the freaking policy and let's see what your police are really doing. Well, friends, have a lovely Sunday brunching and doing all of the things. And um, for what? What you say about us? What you say about us? You be antagonizing the movement, people, Joe. <laughs> hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. 
Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. So language is really important. And this conversation with Bayard Pittner really helped push me to think differently about the way we use language and the precision that's required. Now, his research focuses on the term ethnocide, which describes the systemic erasure of a person's ancestral culture. And his focus is on the, quote, linguistic void and how we discuss race and culture in the United States. I learned a ton. We go through his book. His book is dope. You should get it. The Crime Without a Name, Combating Ethnocide and the Erasure of Culture in America. What is a crime without a name? Here we go with Barrett Pittner. Barrett, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, I'm fascinated by the book and the interpoint as a point of language. Can you talk about how you got to this work as a field of study? And like, what's your story? How did you get here? So, you know, the, the amended story is I, I went to journalism school at Northwestern and I was going to be a regular journalist. And around 2015, I, I got the opportunity to start writing uh, opinion pieces in the, in the Daily Beast. Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting when someone says that your opinion is something that's unique and they want you to like just articulate your ideas instead of like reporting other people's stuff. Um, and so I started writing about race, culture, and politics. And when my stories came out, I noticed that the, the nuances I was trying to articulate, I didn't think the audience was like really getting it. And uh, that made me really think about how to like rephrase what I was trying to say in these pieces. And eventually it just hit me that maybe there wasn't the words to articulate what I was trying to say. And now I need to find old words or make a new word to articulate what I was trying to convey in my pieces. And that kind of started this linguistic journey to uh, create, to write my book and, and everything like that. And so, you know, the book was difficult, but in many ways, it was a, a process of trying to find the language to articulate to other people how I already saw the world. So, you know, it was hard, but, you know, just it's just finding a way to communicate with other people, in, 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 essentially. 
And why for you is language so important? There are a lot of things that you could have written about that have to do with race and justice and the many social ills of the world. What for you made language stick out as one of the defining assets of how we think about solutions and how we think about this work? In America, we always talk about actions. Everyone tries to articulate that actions are the most important thing, but but the language precedes the action. And so you have to have precise language so that people can actually communicate and work together on things. And I think one of the big issues in, in America is there's a lack of clarity with language. And we try to fill that lack of clarity with uh, emotional connection. So like a, a good example would be, say, you're, when you, we all have conversations with our friends and your friend might misspeak and you know what they are trying to say. So even though they didn't actually say what they intended to say, you cut them some slack because you know what they're trying to say. And that's just a natural thing that all of us do. But then the question happens, what happens when you talk to someone that isn't already your friend? Like there's another layer of precision so that they know what you're trying to say so that they can agree or disagree or whatever. You can't just like expect everyone to cut you that slack because they they understand what you tried to say. And so language is essential so that we can communicate precisely and accurately how we see the world and how we interact in the world. And without that precision, it makes it almost impossible to to effectively work together with anybody. And so language is, is key. And, and and for me, how I like honed in on it came out because I was a journalist and I had to write my pieces where my columns weren't things I was writing to just my friends. They were writing to a general audience and they had to know clearly what I was trying to say because they didn't, they don't know me well enough to cut me that linguistic slack. So I had to be very, very precise. So the profession kind of made that need for precision to increase a little bit more. And like a key distinction for me is like in the U S when we talk about race and I, and I mentioned this in a, in a column I recently wrote, about the book for the Daily Beast. But like when Americans talk about race, we talk about race as if that's the thing that defines our existence. But I never saw it as that. It's definitely a part of my identity, but I, the thing that really defines my existence is my culture. But in the US, when people talk about culture, we often perceive that as an appreciation for the arts or entertainment. And so like, if I said culture, I'm talking about the traditions and things that sustain me and nurture me and somebody else would hear Barrett likes going to the to the museum, and that's like we can't have a conversation uh, just due to that ambiguity with the language. So I kind of had to make sure we could uh, understand what each, each other is saying, so that we could decide to work together or not. And so that's what one of the reasons why language is so important. Let's go straight to uh, chapter one. And and one of the biggest things that you pushed me on was ethnocide. How did you get to the word ethnocide? How did you rediscover? I guess, you know, you didn't make it up, but but you talk about the journey to the word and why you think the word does work that other words don't do. Yeah, you know, the, the journey for me to ethnocide is at first I constructed the word and then after I constructed it, I wanted to see if somebody else had already made it. And turns out this gentleman, Raphael Lemkin, had made it in 1944, but the word had been largely ignored. And so as an African-American, when I was thinking about America's systemic divisions and our, our, our conflicts, 
normally the discussion is like it's a racial division. It's race this, race that. But I never really saw it that way. I always saw it as a cultural problem where like there's a, a America has a culture that's instilling people to act this way or that way. And the color of your skin can impact how that culture impacts you, but it's a cultural conversation, not a racial one. And so due to thinking about it through culture, ethnocide made a lot of sense because the transatlantic slave trade, which is like the foundation for these racial identities and the systemic division and the Americas is, was due to the destruction of African culture while keeping the people. That, that was the agenda. There's no ambiguity about that. So uh, ethnocide, as in the destruction of culture, became a great word to talk about the, like, the foundational like, structure that colonizers implemented that creates the division that we're still struggling over today. And so ethnocide just linguistically made sense to me. I never, you know, lots of people would describe uh, the transatlantic slave trade as uh, as a Holocaust or a genocide. Um, But with genocide, the goal of genocide is to forcefully remove or eradicate people so that you can live in a space without them. Clearly, that's not what the goal was for African people. Like colonizers didn't want to live in a space without black people. They wanted to live in a space with African people and then be able to exploit African people in perpetuity. So like, it's different than genocide, even though the terror might be similar. So I felt it needed its own word, just to clarify that distinction between genocide and ethnocide. And then the work of Raphael Lemkin was really helpful because now there's a whole like existing legal framework language that can kind of get added onto it. So even though people hadn't really used ethnocide to talk about the transatlantic slave trade, uh, chattel slavery and the systemic divisions of America, there was already kind of like a, a foundation to apply this previous word, um, ethnocide, to like new application of it. That makes sense. Um, can I read a paragraph? It did make sense. Yeah. Can I read a paragraph to you from the book and then can we talk about it? Yeah, sure. Okay. An ethnocidal society divides the people of its society by relegating truth to a negative influence. The source of truth resides exclusively with the ethnociders because the culture depends on sustaining ethnocidal division. They need to keep their power to divide society and possess the truth regardless of whether it is true or false. Truth is irrelevant with an ethnocide. America has countless examples of the meaningless truths that ethnocide creates, but race is the most obvious one. Can you help us understand that? Like why, when you say this idea that truth is irrelevant within ethnocide, what does that mean? So, so truth, and I talk about this like in a, a subsequent chapter, um, but lots of places truth comes from communication. I determine what's the truth by talking to other people in an equitable way. But if your society is based on sustaining division, one person's on top and one person's at the bottom, or one group of people at the top and one group's at the bottom, truth is not a thing that's valued in that society because if the person at the top does something that's wrong, that could result in them losing power, they don't want that truth to exist because that truth will change their entire way of life. So their truth can exist, but it's not uh, actually important. What's important is sustaining the power dynamics where the person or the group of people who get to oppress, which I call the ethnociders, 
get to oppress the ethnocide in perpetuity. So, you know, there can be truth, but once that truth could make it so that there's an equitable relationship between people, then the truth just gets destroyed and sent away. So, you know, if you look at the conflict over critical race theory, like critical race theory is just articulating some pretty obvious truth. You know, like we're just talking about how in these states that were former Confederate states, there's a foundation of racial division that, you know, has, has shaped the whole environment. That's pretty obvious. But that's an unpleasant truth that will make a lot of white Americans who enjoy the, I guess how we would say, like the privileges of being able to exploit their environment makes them feel really uncomfortable. So America has an agenda of destroying that truth. That truth has to go away. So that's how truth becomes irrelevant within an ethnocidal society, because the emphasis isn't to be truthful or wise or, or good. It's supposed to be sustaining this division that allows one group of people a greater capacity to exploit other people in perpetuity. Throughout the throughout the book, you talk about uh, your own family and and like the sort of the journey of uncovering sort of the family history. You talk about the Day of the Dead and and like the family stories around that. Why was it important to do your own sort of interrogation of of your life uh, in in this conversation, this macro conversation about race and ethnocide? You know, when you talk about philosophy and concepts that can you know, could be over someone's head or just like people are unfamiliar with, you know, especially philosophy, where lots of times the language people use is something that's really unrelatable. I, I really thought it was important to make it so that these complex ideas, I can articulate how they have a very practical manifestation and not just my personal life right now, but like the life of my family for generations, where I'm not talking about abstract concepts. I'm talking about real, concrete uh impact applications to my day-to-day life. I thought that was really important. And at the same time, like the, the, the focus of the book is me finding the language to articulate how I already saw the world. So like if I'm talking to myself, I don't need precise language. I know what I mean to say. You know, when I talk to my friends, my language needs to be a bit more precise, but they'll cut me some slack. When I'm talking to the general public, it has to be very, very precise. So the language that I've always had lived with me kind of unspoken. I didn't need to, to say anything. But now it exists in the world, and I need to articulate these ideas. And the, the, the best way to accurately articulate the world for me was these philosophical concepts. But it wasn't uh, the origin derived from my lived experiences. So it's... It, it kind of paints a narrative where you kind of get an idea of how I've always seen the world, while also hopefully being able to use part of that narrative to apply it to your own life. And you can see that these complex ideas actually are really applicable to all of our day-to-day experiences, and it makes it quite relatable, is the hope. And, and then another thing that's quite important is when you live in a place that's ethnocidal, like America, there will be an emphasis on not remembering your culture or your history, your past, you know, looking forward. Don't look at the past. Don't, you know, spend a lot of time knowing where you come from, especially if you're you know, a person of color, because those, that past can be that past can be really traumatic or that past can bring up truths 
that American society was, is not comfortable addressing. And so making sure that I uh, uh, talked about my family history and the breadth of it so that people could see how that's important to my day-to-day, but also maybe empowering other people of color to do that work too, because there's a growing, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, shift, I'd say, uh, within the Black community of finding our roots and learning more about where we come from, because a lot of that has been erased. You know, that culture has been erased. So I wanted to make sure that uh, my culture hadn't been uh, literally or, you know, uh, figuratively erased in my own book to show people the importance of keeping that culture and not normalizing and distance with uh, erasure. Now, why does this matter today? So, you know, there are a lot of people who I think would would hear this and, and say, okay, this is like an interesting intellectual exercise. Like, let's use different language. And as organizers, we often say that uh, people have the experiences before they have the language. And you just said it, right? That like, this was a world, if you're talking to yourself, you already had the language, but part of finding the language is how we communicate it out. Why does this matter today for how we think about solutions in the world? Or, you know, I think something top of mind for most people is is Rittenhouse right now. Like, why does this matter today? Oh, it, it, it matters today because you can see that our society is actively struggling with how to articulate problems that we know have been longstanding and systematic. You know, like when people talk about the Rittenhouse verdict, a lot of African-Americans especially aren't surprised. We expected this, but there's not a precision to say why this is our norm and why this has been the problem. You know, we get close and we can talk about it, say like this person's racist or that or whatever, and that's close to being accurate. But it's not. And so as we're trying to tackle these problems that we know have existed for the entirety of our time in America, like for generations, you have to have that precision of language so that you can accurately identify the problem. You know, like a, a good analogy would be COVID. Say COVID existed and we didn't have the precise language to define what this disease was. If we didn't have it, then we would be very bad at making vaccines. We probably have a whole bunch of like testing theories or whatever. And, you know, we try a bunch of stuff and, you know, we would hope that it would work. And then we'd find out that a lot of it doesn't, but we'd be close. It wouldn't be effective. But now that we have the precise language that COVID is this type of disease that does this or similar ones and da 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 da, uh, now we can make vaccines and life can get better quicker than a lot of people thought was possible. Like the, the expediency of making these vaccines is, is historic. Um, so that's how it works. So if we're trying to organize people, you know, organizing people is all about communication, being able to have the consistency of language, being able to consistently be able to respond to someone who asks a question like, why did this happen? Why is this a problem? What can I do to fix it? What, you know, how's it going? Um, that's essential. So. You know, we all have our internal language, which doesn't have to be precise. But if we're trying to work with other people and get other people to uh, understand these dynamics, you have to have precise language so that you can actively work together. You know, like a, a great example would be, uh, you know, my, my friend Sam, he, um, you know, as I was working on this book, 
since it's language, it's hard for me to communicate it to people before it's, you know, close to getting done because it's a lot of language, you know, it's easy for people to think I'm just talking gibberish. Um, but once you understand it, then next thing you know, you say, this makes sense and I'm going to speak this language. I think the word ethnocide makes a lot of sense. That's what people would say. And so then it becomes really easy for them to say, hey, ethnocide explains this. My friend said something that was close to it. Like we're feeling the same thing. I know what they're trying to say, but here's a word that helps them say it better. And then they share that word and then they say it. And now those two people can collaborate and make change. And it just, it's just what, that's what language does. And so I think it gives a, a really great opportunity to collaborate in ways that we hadn't collaborated before, uh, but also to envision solutions that we hadn't thought about before. Because instead of having conversations about race and racism, we can have conversations about a, a bad cultural foundation and that culture creates racial divisions. And so it's not that someone's racially good or bad, it's we all are being subjected to something that encourages us to culturally not be as good as we can be. And so let's address that cultural problem and then see what we can do. And I, I think it, it, it provides a, a really unique opportunity to make our society a lot better. But it is, though, that people, is it an either or? Can it be a both and? That some people are being racially bad, right? Like some people are racist and problematic and they sit within a larger culture or am I misunderstanding? Push me, tell me, help Oh yeah, me. no, you're totally, people can totally be both. It's more of like what's the order in which you think the problem comes from. You know, so like if there's a, you know, like we, America's an ethnocidal place. So it's, we all are getting knowledge or information that is encouraging us to divide and, be exploitative and, you know, not have empathy to other people. That's just how America encourages a lot of people to act. There's plenty of people that rebel against that quite a bit, and that's quite good. And there's other people who, who don't, and a lot of those people we would classify as racist. But the origin for the problem is due to this foundational cultural problem, and then they become racist. But there's a lot of people in America that would never, ever say that they're racist. And they end up doing racist things because they think their cult, because their culture has told them that these are good things that aren't racist. Like, you need to have a language to talk to those people and being able to tell them, like, this thing that you're doing has racist outcomes because there's a cultural problem is a really great opportunity to be able to communicate with all these other types of people. And then if they decide to still do racist things, now it's okay you've consciously decided to do racist things. Like there's no ambiguity now. There's no like, you know, you just made that decision. Like you, you were unaware that it was a cultural problem. I showed you that it is. You then decide to continue doing the thing that has racist outcomes. Well, you just decide to be racist. That's just, that's just me being fair. That changes the conversation. So yeah, you can be both, but it, it's what, you know, it, what it's what comes first and the culture comes first. And then, you know, you're, connection to race and racism comes second. Let's talk about solutions. So you you know that there are three three sort of ways forward. One is um, like awareness and then laws and policies. But the second, can we talk about the second one? Can you like, it, let me paraphrase what I believe you said. And I, this is one where it's like, thank God I get to talk to you because I'm like, I don't think I'm smart enough. Let me ask him. Um, <laughs> the second one was sort of to focus on like creating the cultural conditions for change. That's my like organizer paraphrase. Uh, yeah. Is that right? Am I close? 100%. Yeah. So the key thing is if we live in a society that normalizes 
the destruction of people's culture. Well, a way that you have to combat that is to create the environment to create and sustain culture. And one of the problems that America has is we try to have these cultural discourses. It's uh, in many ways like a racial conversation where sustain the culture, sustain the culture of a of this race or that race or whatever. But in the U.S., if you are uh, a person that cares about treating everyone equally, there's a very high likelihood that you're going to mix with somebody of a different race, and that's going to create like a new type of culture, a new type of culture that needs a name, that needs a structure to sustain the cultural practices of those two people and then create the practices of like a new shared culture. And that's really, really important. Because if we have normalized for the long time the erasure of culture, we now have to start normalizing the sustaining and cultivation of like that new shared culture. Um, and that kind of gets people to start acting differently. And that's a very action-oriented way of doing things. And so like in the book, I talk about Day of the Dead because Day of the Dead is an indigenous practice uh, that's been going on in America. But People around the world have a whole array of ancestor remembrance traditions that were unique to like their physical cultural place. But now they're all in America, and there's not a place for uh, people to remember their ancestors in a collective shared environment. There has to be that place. Like you're, if you're from Cambodia and you have like a Buddhist practice to remember your ancestors and you're really great friends with a Mexican person and they have their tradition to remember their ancestors, we have to make a cultural space so you guys can do that together because that's what a shared cultural community uh, would need to look like. And America doesn't encourage that. Like at my organization, the Sustainable Culture Lab, we've created that environment. Like we, we call it the Ulcers Festival, where we bring people together of different ways of life, have them make altars representative of their culture, and then put all those altars in the same environment so we can all see how these cultures are different, but how we're all together in remembering our culture. And this creates something new. It creates a new environment. So that's one way that we are working to like create this space to cultivate and sustain uh, culture, but there's a lot of other manifestations that can come from that. It's just aligning your thinking to recognizing the importance of sustaining our culture from the past while also creating a platform to share it and mix it with people who we want to like share and mix our lives with. Can you talk about the lab you run, the Sustainable Culture Lab? What is it? Can people get involved? Should people like, I don't know, can they sign up? Like what's the, what's the what? And then I'll ask you the two questions we ask everybody. The Sustainable Culture Lab came about really organically, actually, as I was working on the book, The Crime Without a Name. Um, I actually took a pretty collaborative approach to like writing my book where I would, you know, I wrote it all on my own, but I had friends and I would talk to them because I wanted to make sure that how I was articulating things in my book made sense to people who didn't uh, know all of this stuff. And as I would talk to my friends, they were like, this needs to be an organization. This needs to be something where you have talks, discussions to, to figure out, uh, to share this with people. And I was like, That's, I love that. Uh, let, let's do it. And so the Sustainable Culture Lab was born out of that. And this 
it was created. We launched it uh, in October of 2019, so right before COVID hit, essentially. So we started having like a lot of gatherings in D.C., and then COVID hit, and we had to figure out how to do everything online. So what we've done since then is uh, we have a newsletter called The Word, where everyone gets uh, a word uh, every week to help empower themselves, gives them a new perspective on how to see the world, how to articulate the world. Um, so that's called The Word. So we have our newsletter. We, we were doing podcasts and media where you have a whole strategy for what the media we will be doing next year. Um, we have our Altars Festival, which I, I loosely describe, but we, it's inspired by Day of the Dead. Um, and so for people to participate and be a part of it, you can become a paid member of our Substack, which is this uh, SCL, uh, you know, the Sustainable Culture Lab. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's at Substack. You can just look it up. And, um, and you can, so you can give money through that. You can also give us donations. And, you know, what we try to do now that we can start doing more and more gatherings is create that space to create culture and create the space that would have the language to empower themselves as they try to articulate a more equitable environment and just kind of grow from there. Because if you have that discussion, then you can start creating the proper actions. Then those proper actions can create policies because you can have the right language to create the policies and it kind of all bleeds together. But the first thing you have to have is the philosophy and the words that can align you to think the proper way to make the change. And then we can work together to make change that transcends what has been the status quo. And so that's kind of what we do. So I view it more as a, as a cultural think tank, but with a, a bit more public facing uh, uh, application. Now, uh, the two questions we ask everybody. The first is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I try to build relationships with people and not think about it as like a, a business per se. Uh, I think American society tries to encourage people to be really transactional um, and, and talk to people in a way that you envision getting something out of them. Um, my language, that would be very ethnocidal. I'm not trying to talk to people to extract things from them. I'm trying to talk to people to cultivate things with them without a full understanding of what exactly, but let's see what we can do, form a relationship. So interacting with people with the goal of creating a relationship, something that I would like to sustain in some capacity for however long as possible is, a, is a, I guess, a piece of advice that I've kind of cultivated for myself after observing how people try to interact in the world. So I, I would say that is probably the best thing. You just be yourself, cultivate relationships with people and create the platform for something cool to happen. Um, but don't uh, put too much pressure or view it as a transaction. Is what I'd say. The last question is, what do you say to people who feel like they've done everything, right? They called, they emailed, they read your book, they read mine, they listened to the podcast. They've done all the things and the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? Well, so there's a lot of things I, I'd say that, well, like, first of all, I don't think you should limit yourself to your imagination. So, you know, the idea of how you think the world should change if we live in a really great society, uh, you know, if we the world we live in is going to exceed our expectations um, or not exist within our expectations. So, you know, the idea of doing everything right, there is no such thing as doing everything. And there is no such thing as, as doing everything right. You just have to have a philosophy 
of actively doing actions that are beneficial and go from there and be critical and, and analyze, you know, how you can make adjustments and make improvements because there's just no such thing as doing everything. Um, so I think trying to believe that you've done everything right um, means that there's probably some other things that you could imagine doing or that somebody else has imagined doing that you should talk to them and, and do something else. But it's a constant effort. Everything is a constant effort. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> okay, real quick, I'd say a lot of people think that things are existence is static and that you do a certain amount and then everything becomes how you imagine it and just kind of gets a chill in some like heaven on earth. That's just not how everything, anything has ever worked. Things work because you have a philosophy that makes it easy for you to consistently do good things, no matter what the circumstances. And the goodness you do could be at a very micro level that impacts just like yourself and your small family. And that's maybe the extent that you can do. And then there's other people, the extent that they can do could shape millions of people. But they're only able to do that because of the philosophy and the consistency of action. So it's never in everything. It doesn't ever stop. You are going to philosophically do good actions all the time. And that's just how it's supposed to be. Boom. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me, me, me. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.